Good morning. morning. Happy Easter. Glad you're here this morning. Hey, this morning we're going to talk about a message that talks about how this changes everything, how Easter changed everything for Christians. And I started to think to myself about some other things that changed everything. Uh, I, I was reminded of this. This is an early prototype of the wheel. It came off of a Prius, I think. It got horrible gas mileage. How many people were here for the invention of the wheel? Kids, do not look at grandma right now. That is so wrong. Grandma's not that old. I, I, I noticed this after I built this, is that it actually maybe was the foundation of the cornhole, though that's how that came to be. But the wheel changed everything, right? Before the wheel, there was only a certain amount of stuff and a certain distance that you could travel that stuff. And so the wheeled cart came along and it made agriculture and commerce possible. You could move it longer distances. You could move people longer distances. So the wheel changed absolutely everything. Without the wheel, there would be no wheel of fortune, right? Without the wheel, there, the, the wheels on the bus would never go round and round, round and round, right? The wheel changed everything. Something else that changed everything was the light bulb. You guys remember the light bulb? The light bulb changed everything. When the light bulb was introduced, it changed the way that we were always dependent on natural light. And so when the light bulb was introduced, it made it so that we could be productive both during the day and at nighttime, right? Thomas Edison is credited with with inventing the light bulb, but what he actually invented was an entire system. He invented a generator, and then a wiring system, and then an incandescent bulb like this that would uh, make light available anytime. Now, without light bulbs, you would never have light bulb jokes. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many senior citizens does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is, whoa, 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 who said change anything? We're not changing anything. How about this? This is my actual favorite, though. How many dance instructors does it take to change a light bulb? You know the answer? It's easy. It's five, six, seven, eight. I know. Don't encourage him. I got you. Um, but here's the thing. We, hey, can we turn down the lights so people could see this, really, with the lights down? Without a light bulb, when it's dark... It's just dark. You had to wait for sunrise for the, without a light bulb. And it reminds me that sunrise leads us to Sunday morning. And it was sunrise. It was early. It was before sunrise, right? And get this, Mary was in a dark place on that first Easter morning. It was dark out that morning. It says in the scriptures, John 20, verse 1, it says, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still, what? Dark. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Mary was the first one to the tomb. In some of the other gospel accounts, we see that Mary was with a group of women, but we know that Mary Magdalene was one of the first at the tomb. And get this, Mary was a part of a group of women from Galilee, and they had supported Jesus' ministry. They both supported it financially, and in other ways, they had enabled for the disciples to travel and teach and heal and do all those things. Some people think Mary Magdalene was maybe a former prostitute. 
Some people think maybe Mary was the one that, when Jesus was down riding in the dirt in one of those gospel accounts trying to protect a woman who was going to be stoned by the crowd, that maybe it was Mary Magdalene he was protecting. Some people have, have said Mary, maybe Mary was the one that, that came in and dumped out that bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet and dried his feet with her hair. We don't have any proof of, of those stories, but what we do know is how Jesus met Mary Magdalene. And let's look in Luke chapter 8, we see where Jesus met her. And it says, soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing what? The good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were who? Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out what? Get this, Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. Not one, not two, not four, seven demons. Jesus cast out these demons. He healed her from demon possession. He literally freed her from her demons. And get this, this is the first point this morning. Boy, when Jesus heals you, it changes everything. When Jesus heals you, it changes everything. Imagine with me, if you would, that you've been diagnosed with stage four cancer and it's terminal. You're gonna die. It's advanced. There's no two ways about it. And a doctor comes to you and he says, I have a new treatment. Um, it is experimental. It is not approved by anyone, but I know it works and I believe it'll heal you. And you're desperate. So you say, well, let's try it. Let's try anything at this point, right? And get this, the treatment works and you are healed and you are healed completely, absolutely completely. No sign of cancer left. And the doctor comes back to you and he says, um, here's the deal, I need you to come with me so that we can go to medical boards around the world, so that we can go to hospitals and surgeons and, and teach them this treatment that we've come up with and you're the proof that it works and I need you to travel with me. Would you go? Yeah, you'd go. He says it's going to take maybe years. We need to get all the way around the world to save lives. Would you still go? Yeah, you'd still go because when you're healed and you had nothing left and he heals you, you're willing to do anything. And so you follow along, right? Get this, Jesus healed Mary and Mary became a follower of Jesus the rest of his days. She followed him everywhere. She followed him all the way to the foot of the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross on that Friday night, when you look at the foot of the cross, there's some women gathered there. And one of them is Jesus' mother, Mary, which I can't get my head around. But sitting right next to her is Mary Magdalene, the demon-possessed woman. She followed him all the way to the cross. So I want you to imagine this Sunday morning. It's dark. She's coming to the tomb. And Mary's been one of Jesus' closest followers. I mean, this is a very dark morning for Mary. He's gone and dead. And, and she runs to tell Peter and John, we see in the scripture, right, that there's an empty tomb. And I, I'm going to skip over a few verses here, but basically Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb, and, and they, what, they just want to see if what Mary's saying is true. And they arrive, and the tomb is empty. In fact, when they arrive, they go into the tomb, and they peer in and they go in and they see that it's empty 
Inside they find some folded up cloths, including a neatly folded head cloth that belonged to Jesus. Now, no Roman soldier would have taken the time to fold the head cloth. No, no grave robber would have, would have taken the time to fold the head cloth. But the, the tomb is empty. There's no one there. And Peter and John come back out, and this is where I have a question. How long is proper etiquette to wait at an empty tomb? Does anyone know? Is it a half hour? Is it an hour? Is it, is it two hours? How long do you wait? Because at some point you're like, still empty. Nobody here. What do, we, what do we do next? I think at some point, Peter must have turned to John and said, um, you getting hungry? And I think John looked back and said, yeah. And Peter says, um, breakfast? And John says, yeah. And Peter says, I hop? And John says, yeah. And they go. They go off and they leave. But you know who doesn't leave? It's Mary. Mary doesn't leave. She's still there. And get this. For Mary, darkness leads to confusion. Darkness leads to this confusion for her. We're going to see it very clearly in the scriptures. John 20, verse 11, it says, Mary was standing outside the tomb. What was she doing? Crying. And as she, what? Wept. She stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, what does he ask? Why are you crying, the angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John are at IHOP eating a Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity breakfast. And Mary is sitting there having an encounter with an angel. Now, I don't know how you picture this, but Mary's been sitting out there crying most of the morning is the way I I think about it. I don't think this crying was the kind of crying that you get like Hollywood crying. It wasn't kind of a gentle crying with maybe a glistening tear going down her cheek. I think Mary was ugly crying. How many people know what I'm talking about? Anybody here ever cry ugly? You know what I mean? Ugly crying involves sobbing and heaving and your face gets red and your eyes get all puffy and there's snot and there's mucus everywhere. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever looked at somebody and said, please stop crying? I don't care if you're still sad. I just can't look at you anymore. Right? I think that's the way that she was crying that morning. And so I don't know why she missed that these were angels. Maybe her eyes were swollen shut or there were still, you know, tears in her eyes or maybe the morning fog. But these are angels she's talking to. And she seems to just sort of casually do that. It says in John 20, verse 14, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was who? It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, what does he ask? Why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the... What? Jesus is right there and she thinks he's the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. I can't get my head out of the... She thinks it's the gardener. Her eyes must have been swollen shut. She must have been crying. She must have been so distraught she couldn't figure it out. But let me ask you a question. You ever been in a really dark place? You know what I'm talking about? The kind of dark place where you, it seems like there is no hope at all. The world is closing in around you and you, 
You almost can't even conceive of going out to look for help. Man, it's confusing when you're in that dark place. It's hard to hear or see anything. And you're not sure what to do at all. You're not even sure where to go looking for help. I think that she was confused in that darkness. But get this. In her confusion, Jesus came to her. In our confusion, Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us in those moments. You may not recognize him. You may not accept him. But he comes to us. He continues to come looking for us. Man, if you don't hear anything else I say today, this morning, hear this. Jesus has been chasing you your whole life. He keeps coming to you again and again and again, even if you don't recognize him. He's been there in every crisis. He's been there in every depression. He's been there in every addiction. He's been there in every loss. He's been there in every grief. In every hospital room. In every living room during a shouting fight. He's been there. In every job loss. In every breakup. In every moment where your life didn't make sense. He comes to us. And he came to Mary that morning. And get this. When Jesus calls your name it changes everything. When Jesus calls your name, it changes everything. The scripture says, what did Jesus say? Mary. He calls out her name, Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. And at that moment, in my mind, the light went on for Mary. Right? everything instantly started to make sense. She had that aha moment. You ever have anybody call out your name and you know instantly who it is? Anybody ever had mom call out your name and you, and you know, oh, oh, mom's mad. Anybody know that? How many people have ever had dad call out your name and immediately you're like, we better hide. We're going to get a whooping. But when you hear your name from a familiar voice, It immediately makes sense and you know what's going on. And she had that moment where the light came on and her aha moment. Get this. I don't want you to miss this. According to the Gospel of John, the very first person that Jesus spoke to after his resurrection was Mary. The first person to preach the good news was Mary. The first person to say, He is risen! That isn't what they said back to her. Nobody had ever heard it before. And so they looked at her and went, are you all right? You've been crying ugly. She was the very first person to carry the gospel message. Not Peter, not John, not a disciple. A woman who had been possessed by seven demons. A woman who spent all morning crying at the tomb, red-faced, eyes puffy, She was the first person to carry the news that Jesus was alive. But get this, Mary wasn't the only one in the dark after the resurrection. 
Thanks, Steve. You know, in the same way that Mary found herself in a dark place before meeting with the risen Jesus and really just having her life um, transformed by that um, encounter, if you continue on in the story in John chapter 20, which I'd like to do, um, you quickly come to another disciple who is struggling in a different way, but is struggling nonetheless and really needs some change and some new direction um, in his life. I'm talking about a disciple by the name of Thomas. Thomas um, found himself in a dark place, um, but Thomas was one of the original 12 disciples. So that was kind of a big deal. He had seen and done some amazing things in his life. And just even in the last three years, try to imagine all that he'd been through with Jesus, all of the things that he'd done. And yet still, Thomas is always known by a certain nickname. If you've been around at all, you know that Thomas gets saddled with this nickname. What's Thomas known for? He's called Doubting Thomas. That's right. Now, personally, I actually think that it's very unfair that Thomas gets forever saddled with this nickname, Doubting Thomas. Uh, If you think about it, none of the other disciples get labeled for their shortcomings, right? We never talk about impatient Peter. We never talk about hungry John always running off to IHOP because I don't think that happened. I, will, I mean, we'll check later, but maybe that might have been a little extra. Um, we don't talk about prideful Paul, um, but he forever gets labeled as Doubting Thomas. Um, the truth of it is, is Thomas is not the only follower of Jesus to actually express questions or to raise doubts, including some of the the biggies bring questions to Jesus and about Jesus. In fact, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, if if you can imagine this, uh, uh, for goodness sake, uh, an angel appears to Mary and spells it out uh, as clear as could be that you're going to give birth to this son, and this son is going to be the savior of the world, and you're going to call him Jesus, and she gives him all the details, and Mary's first response is not, she gets to faith, but her first response is not. Her first response is, who are you talking about? No, that, that's not me. You must have the wrong girl there. And her first response was doubt. I was thinking about John the Baptist. Jesus actually calls, you know that Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest person ever born. And he's known for, for great faith in Jesus. He's the one who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet we see that uh, there's times when even John the Baptist uh, has times of doubt. There's a time when he wonders, is, is Jesus really who I, I think he is? And that's when Jesus, by the way, sends people back and says, go, go tell John. Go tell John that the, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go tell John, I am exactly who he thinks that I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm God with you. And and so I think it's a little unfair that Thomas goes down in history as doubting Thomas, especially because if you think about it, doubts and questions are natural and they don't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Now, I understand as people of faith, sometimes, you know, doubts or questions can feel very threatening. And I, you know, I understand that. Um, I've actually always uh, appreciated um, people who, you know, can say with great confidence, you know, God says it, I believe it, and, and that settles it. Maybe you even grew up in an environment where to ask questions or to express doubts, you just knew that it was, was not okay. Well, I always appreciate those people that have that great, honest, natural faith. But I'll be honest, I've never naturally been that person. 
I'm someone who wants evidence. I'm someone who, who wants reasons to believe. And so questions don't have to be an enemy of faith. Our questions can actually point us to God as long as we allow our questions to not become a dead end. If we continue to seek after God, he says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And so honest questions are okay. And, and this is what we read about when we go to verse 24 of John 20, which Steve got us started in earlier. It says this. It says, one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. When Jesus told him, we have seen the Lord, or I'm sorry, when, uh, when Jesus came, they, the other disciples, I'm sorry, were talking, and they told Thomas, hey, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, Thomas did, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. So as I said, Thomas is in kind of this dark and really very negative place, especially when it comes um, to faith. Now, since Jesus had had that encounter with Mary and spoken her name, eight days have passed. So eight days had passed since that first um, Sunday. During that time, we know that Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. They were in a locked room and Jesus appears to them. He actually even allows them to touch his hands and his side. But verse 24, which we just read there, says that Thomas wasn't with them at that time. And to me, this is actually one of the first of a few things that I want to suggest actually kind of fueled an attitude of doubt for Thomas. Again, doubt doesn't have to be a bad thing, but if it becomes a dead end, as Thomas was on its way to, it can become a bad thing. And there's certain things. God, God calls us to him. God's got a full and abundant plan for each and every one of us, and he calls us to him. And yet there's all sorts of things that we allow to kind of pull us away from that. And, and doubt can, can lead to that, but there's certain things that will feed that doubt. And the first one I want to suggest we see in Thomas is that Thomas's doubt grew when he was disconnected from the others, right? Now, we're not told why Thomas wasn't with the other disciples that day. We're just told that he wasn't there. The next thing we know, however, is that he's full of doubt. He's, he's absent from being with the others, and then we see that the doubt kind of takes over in his life. Now, for all I know, Thomas might have had some very good reasons why he wasn't there. Maybe his kids had a soccer game that weekend. Or maybe, um, maybe he'd worked the night before and it was his only night to relax. Or maybe some of the other disciples had been mean to him or been hypocrites and so he didn't feel like he belonged there. All kinds of reasons why he would have separated himself from the other disciples. But all we know is this, is that he wasn't there and then doubt begins to grow. And the reality is, is that can happen for us. Are we separating ourselves from the, the good influences? And then we wonder, God, God just doesn't seem real or God doesn't seem to be there. Well, we've allowed things that would breed doubt into our life, and that happens to Thomas. Second thing that Thomas does is Thomas uh, has doubt that grows when he forgets what he had seen Jesus do. So one of Jesus' greatest and, and, and best miracles takes place in John chapter 11. It's where he raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus is friends with Lazarus, and, and uh, he hears that Lazarus is sick and then, and then dies. And Thomas actually plays a big part in this miracle because Lazarus dies, and Jesus doesn't go to him right away. He actually waits. It's four days before Jesus goes to, to, to see what's going on with Lazarus. And the disciples are kind of like, should we go too? And Thomas is actually the one that speaks up among all the disciples and says, hey, we should go and be a part of what Jesus is doing. 
And Jesus goes to where Lazarus is, and he raises him from the dead. He goes into this tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Lazarus gets up and walks out. So the point I want to make is that Thomas had seen firsthand that Jesus had the power over death, right? Nobody had ever had the power over death like that before. And yet, for some reason, in this moment, Thomas had forgotten just how powerful Jesus was. He'd forgotten what he had seen Jesus do. And I don't know about you, but, but do you ever do that? Do you ever forget that, that maybe you've seen God do something or experienced God do something, but then later on, weeks, months, years down the road, you, you forget about that? And, and I don't know what it is, big and small things. I was thinking uh, maybe it was even like when you were a kid or maybe a teenager in youth group, I don't know, and, and it seems like God was, was close to you. And you remember kind of a, a peace and you remember kind of the, the world fit together at that time. But then you just kind of move on from those things and suddenly become forgetful of those. Maybe there's a time that God's protected you or protected your life. Maybe there's a time that he opened or closed doors in a, a way that are clearly from God. I, I don't know what it would be, but I would imagine that a lot of us have, have seen God do something like that and believe that, and yet we forget those things, and it leads to time of doubt. You know, I know my family has got kind of one of those uh, memories that we come back to uh, often. Uh, it's, it happened when my kids were quite little. My kids were little, and we uh, decided that we were going to go on this big family vacation. So we were super excited about this. We actually borrowed a motorhome from uh, one of Jannie's family members, which is a bad idea, as you're going to see in just a little bit. But we borrowed this motorhome, and we decided that we're going to go on this trip all around California. Our first stop is going to be Disneyland. So we load all the stuff into this motorhome. We put all our clothes, all the toys, everything we need for this trip into this motorhome, and we head down south on 99 toward Disneyland. Well, we get about three hours south on 99, and we decided that it was time to get off and have some dinner. So we pull off, and we're pull off into this, this uh, street, and we're getting ready to, to turn into this parking lot where we were going to park, and we we were going to have dinner together. And as I was getting ready to turn this motorhome into the parking lot, we see this car that we later found out was driven by a drunk driver comes flying the other way and, and actually swerves and then hits the curb and kind of swerves around and hits the back of our motorhome. You guys literally tore the back quarter of this motorhome just off. Just poof, it was just gone. I look back and it wasn't there I- anymore. And um, one of the things that, that, that was tore off the, the, the back quarter of this motorhome was actually where the bedroom was. One of the reasons that we just remember that God was with us on that day is my son, just moments before that, had been laying on the, the bed back there, and then he decided that he would come up and, and be with us. But the motorhome gets torn off, and we're all freaking out, not knowing what to do. And I look out, and I see this fluid starting to come out of the side of the motorhome. And so I've seen this movie before, and I know that we're about to explode. And so I'm like, all right, everybody out of the motorhome right now, quick, everybody out. Actually, Jenny hurts her knee jumping out of the motorhome because I rushed her so much, as she reminds me of uh, often. And Everybody gets out, and then um, uh, later on, turns out that was actually the water tank that had been hit, so we weren't in any super danger there, uh, but we were ready. Uh, but at that same time, it hit the water tank, but it also had hit the, like, the sewage tank, and so we'd only been on the road three hours. There was not a lot in there, but then when the, the police and fire finally came, um, it was, uh, they had to treat it like a hazardous waste site because that, and so, all, like I said, all of the clothes and the toys had all just like, 
out into the middle of this intersection. And there's all these fire trucks. The guys put on their full hazmat suits and started foaming down, like my daughter's little Cinderella dresses that they were going to wear. To do. It was so sad, all their toys and stuff like that. And so this all happened um, in front of a, a, a Denny's restaurant. And so I'm there talking to the, the firemen and the police, and, and Janny's you know, trying to keep the kids under control there in front of the Denny's restaurant. And actually, the, the manager of Denny's comes out and says, hey, we saw what happened. You know, why don't you come on in and at least you know, let us give you something to eat, which was awesome. So Janny and the kids go in, get a booth. They start to eat. And on the whole opposite side of the restaurant, there was this big um, family. It was an African-American family um, there. And, and Janny starts to eat, and, and after a little bit, the very, very sweet lady from this group comes over and, like, real discreet, almost like kind of whispers to Janny, um, we saw what happened to you. Would you mind if we pray for you? I know, I know, Janny's like, please, would you pray for us? That'd be great. And so this lady who'd been super secretive before, now she's like as bold as could be. She stands up, yells across the Denny's restaurant, come on over, they want us to pray. And so next thing I know, I come in and everybody's in this big circle holding hands in the middle of Denny's, praying and thanking God that he had watched over us on that day. I know, I know. And here's the deal. We don't think about it all the time, but sometimes we tell those stories to remember that God has been faithful. But here's what I want you to know. Thomas had seen far more than that. Thomas was there when Jesus called someone up out of the grave and showed that he was powerful over the dead. And yet in that moment, in that crucial moment, he forgot. And when our minds start to empty out of remembering the things that God has done, what begins to fill our minds is doubts and confusions, and things that actually pull us away from God. And it's happened in my life, and for many of us, it may be even happening right this very moment. And so Thomas's doubt grew when he forgot what he had seen Jesus do, but that's not the only thing. Um, it, and we actually see that Thomas's doubt grows when he forgets what he had heard Jesus say. Why do I say that? Because perhaps my favorite Thomas moment in all of the Gospels actually comes in John chapter 14. You might recognize this, this story if you've been around a little bit. I actually share it at almost every few that I lead because Jesus is actually talking to his disciples about death and he's talking about what comes after death and Jesus says this he says don't let your hearts be troubled talking about even death and of course our hearts get troubled when we think about that he says don't let your hearts be troubled trust in God trust also in me Jesus says why because in my father's house there are many rooms and then Jesus says this and I am going there to to heaven to my father's house to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me where I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, I've even got death covered. I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back. And then Jesus says to his disciples this, he says, and you know the way to this place that I am going. And at least the way I imagine it, all the disciples kind of look at each other and like someone's got to ask the question, and who is it? It's Thomas. Thomas has raised his hands and he says, uh, Jesus how do we know the way to this place that you're talking about? And that's when Jesus very famously says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. You come to, to the Father through me. So the point I'm trying to make is that Thomas knew the reality that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. But when he got disconnected from fellowship, when he began to forget what he had seen Jesus do in the past, suddenly he has this temper tantrum of doubt. And he says, unless I can touch him, and unless I get this, and unless I get that, and I can do these things, I'm not believing any of it. And I'm sure he thought, case closed, I'm done 
with this Jesus stuff. And what comes next in this story is just an amazing show of not only Jesus' power, but also Jesus' mercy. I say a show of Jesus' power because suddenly Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears in the middle of a room where the door had been locked. But I say it's his mercy because look at what he does for Thomas. He gives Thomas exactly what he needs. Just as he spoke Mary's name, which is exactly what Mary needed at that time, this is what he does with Thomas. Verse 26 says, Eight days later the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you. In other words, Thomas, you don't have to be so upset. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands and put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Thomas, believe. And friends, here's what you need to know. When our belief in Jesus overcomes even our doubts, it changes everything. And it changes everything for Thomas. Because think about it, in that moment, all of the excuses, all of the concerns, all of that stuff faded into the background because now his focus was on the love and the power and the mercy of Jesus. And for some of us here on Easter morning, that's exactly what needs to happen in your life. You've been holding on to excuses maybe in pride that have kept you from believing that Jesus is risen. It's fine for everybody else. But as Steve said, just as he has been there in every moment of your life, he is here in this moment, and he's calling out to you saying, I love you. I gave my life for you. Come and follow me. And when your belief can overcome even those doubts that you have, not that those are ever going to fully be gone away, but when your belief overcomes them, he begins to change you. And that's what happens to Thomas. Why do I say that with confidence? Because look at what verse 28 says. Thomas, when he gets it, he says, Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. You see, when we finally acknowledge Jesus for who he really is, that changes everything. You see what a powerful thing it was for a good Jewish boy like Thomas to say. He calls Jesus my God, right? He acknowledges what Jesus had been teaching them all along, that Jesus was God in the flesh, right? They were fiercely monotheistic, and so for him to admit that was to admit that there's something very special going on with Jesus. So he calls him my God, and he calls him my Lord, which is his way of saying, Jesus, from here on out, you are the leader of my life. To say, Lord, is to say, I trust you, I will follow you, I will live for you. And you guys, when we do that, it changes everything. Which leads us to... So what? Wow, that was good. It's like you guys have been here before. You know, the truth of the matter is, is we know Easter changed everything. The resurrection changed everything for those early disciples. If you think about it, it's 2,000 years later, and across the planet, 2 billion Christians mm-hmm. are still talking about a carpenter from Nazareth. Yep. It changed everything, and it changes us. The only real question left is this. Has it changed you? Has it changed me? Has Jesus changed me from the inside out? I don't know about when he changed you or if he's in the process, but I remember when he changed me. I was a little six-year-old kid believing Jesus as best I could as a six-year-old at the little corner of the church I grew up in. I remember as a 13-year-old singing in a church choir. What a nerd. I know. (laughs) Singing in a church choir and realizing that Jesus loved not just all of us, but he loved even me individually. 
I remember when Jesus called my name and said, it's time to go into ministry. You're going to surrender your life. And I, I, he keeps changing me over and over again. Glenn, you remember when he changed you? I remember very clearly hearing him call my name in that way. I was actually uh, getting, going into like my senior year of high school. I, and a lot of things in my life, I was running completely away from God and his best for me. And, and yet some people invested in me. I, and I got invited to go to this, this camp. And I heard kind of this message that we've been talking about, that, that, that Jesus loves me and he gave his life for me. And suddenly it all made sense. And I can remember, it was years ago, but I, I remember the feeling of being in that room and having it explained. And, and then the, the, the speaker asked, you know, who wants to receive that today? And I remember I jumped up out of my seat and I said, that's me. And I didn't understand it all. And, and I didn't mean it's been smooth sailing all the time ever since then. But I know it's dramatically changed my life and I've never regretted it. He's changed us. We weren't always pastors. <laughs> no. We were punks one time too. But God changed us and he reached into our lives and we believed, even though we didn't have all the, all the testimony that Mary and, and Thomas. Thomas, that's the guy, <laughs> Mary and Thomas had, had Jesus personally appear, but Jesus has shown up in my life time and time again, and maybe this morning as you're sitting here, you're thinking to yourself, Steve, I, it's time. I need change in my life. It's not working, and I need him to change me right now, and you've heard this story before, but maybe today is your day to believe and to make that step of faith and to walk into a new chapter of your life where you are going to accept Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior, and you're going to make him the Lord of your life and you're going to say, please change me. Change everything about me. Would you just bow your heads wherever you're at? Because some of you know what I'm talking about. God is, is literally speaking your name right now. You hear the Holy Spirit. It's welling up inside of you. And it's, it's, it's saying to you, I know this stuff. I've known it. Or maybe today for the first time it's become clear that Jesus loves you. That he died for you. And that because he raised from the dead on that third day, it changed everything. And he has eternal life for you. And he wants to change you from the inside out. You're not going to be changed overnight, but he's going to begin to change you. And that's a lifelong process. But today's maybe the day where you hear God whispering in your ear, today's the day you need to make a decision. Today's the day you need to follow Jesus Christ. Today's the day you need to start that change of everything in your life. If that's you this morning, I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, I want you to shoot your hand up. I want to see that you are making that decision this morning. One, two, three. That's me. Raise your hand up. That's, I see your Hey, if you've got your hand up, would you just meet me eye to eye? Look up here and let me see you. God bless you. God's working in you. God's going to change you. I see you up there. God bless you. God bless you over there. I see you. God bless you. Father, I pray this morning as we walk into your presence that you would change everything for us. God, as my friends here proclaiming their faith and their trust in you, that you would begin that change. We know you're going to change their eternal salvation, their destination. They are no longer destined for hell. They're destined to spend eternity with you, God. But begin that process of changing us on the inside out, God. Make everything about us new. Make everything about us different, God. We surrender our lives to you. We want to make you our Lord, and we want to accept you as our Savior. Father God, change us every day into who you desire us to be. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.